1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Jewish Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Davida Goldberg, and I'm one of the hosts of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Scott Spector, professor of history and German studies at the University of Michigan, about his new book, Modernism Without Jews? German Jewish Subjects and Histories. Professor Spector, welcome.
0: Well, uh, hello, Davida. Thank you for inviting me.
1: It's a pleasure. So, I was hoping that you could explain to me the title of your book. What is this question? How is it how are we supposed to how does the title set up the complications of the terms within it of modernism and Jewishness and subjects and history?
0: Yeah, I mean, that's a a great question to start with. It's also a complicated one to start with, and I'll try to answer it in a way that um, isn't uh, that complicated. But uh, the title of the book takes it, 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 the, a phrase from the title of one of my chapters, which had previously been published as an essay in a, in a journal called Modernism, Modernity. And um, Modernism without Jews, in short, what I hope it evokes is the possibility of rethinking the 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 way we think about secular Jewish culture in relation to modernism or modern culture uh, overall. And that is the, the ways, things that we take for granted in terms of both the connection of this uh, of modern secular Jewish culture to modernism generally, and the whole uh, even simply thinking about that culture, the writing of a Kafka, a Freud, for that matter, a Marx, as Jewish culture, when it isn't coming out of a Jewish religious tradition, it isn't in a explicitly uh, or exclusively Jewish language, um, and so on, um, that produces a kind of problematic relationship to the whole um, subject. And that sort of problem is something I think that stays with all of the chapters of the book. So that's why I chose that particular essay for uh, the phrase from that particular essay. The uh, book, if I can just sort of say something about its structure that will also help answer this question, um, actually begins with three chapters that are more methodologically focused. That is to say they're really focused on big questions that have plagued the writing about uh, modern secular Jewish culture. And just like that term modernism in each of the, uh, of the, these chapters, I take a term that we do use frequently in the uh, literature on uh, modern secular Jewish culture and try to question it. The first one is uh, assimilation. I want to kind of read.
1: So what do you, what is the typical or conventional historian's view of the emancipation and assimilation paradigm?
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, great. Yeah, that is that is something that comes up in that first chapter. Um, I think that what I uh, try to do there um, is uh, first take for granted that there is this accepted uh, trajectory uh, in German Jewish history, and that includes Austro-German Jewish history, from uh, a moment uh, in the Enlightenment where a kind of uh, Jewish emancipation acceptance into the general society was offered, but with an implicit kind of bargain that Jews would give up something of their uniqueness would give up something of their Jewishness to join uh, the general culture. And so that is to say, uh, you could look at emancipation as the external side of it. That is the society offers Jews freedom, uh, some kind of uh, uh, liberty, civic liberties within the society as um, non-Jews have. And uh, it also has an internal aspect that is Jews are expected to what we call assimilate. That is, They're expected uh, to change themselves so that they fit better into the general society. So what I try to do in the chapter is question whether this process actually happened in the ways that seem obvious to us that it must have happened
1: or even sometimes. So what does seem obvious to, especially to the historians um, even to begin with an early historian like Gershom Sholem, or I don't know if he would be called a historian per se, but um, he, he is one who I think you mentioned a famous speech that he gave where he talks about the, the kind of the neurosis of being Jewish in that period. What was it that he said there and how was, how has it affected historians?
0: What I tried to argue with that uh, in that Sholem lecture was that it was a a prime example of something I'm trying to do in the book as a whole. And that is to connect uh, a kind of problem that's identified as a, 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 a kind of identity crisis or, problem of subjectivity in individual Jews who are uh, assimilating. And um, at the same time, um, look at a problem in the writing of the history of those Jews. And the reason that that Sholem mm-hmm. lecture is really paradigmatic is because in a way, I mean, you just called him a historian. He, in that lecture does sort of posit this, what I call the orthodox uh, uh, View of Jewish history, which is uh, the, the view that 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 says that uh, from the moment of enlightenment, when this emancipation assimilation pact was kind of offered to Jews, they over the next century they assimilate, they try to be part of this German culture, and that ends in disaster, as we know, proving that it was always the, the assimilation. Emancipation Assimilation Pact was always flawed. So um, Scholem is both subject and object of this kind of discourse, if you see what I mean. he's Mm -hmm. Everyone knows that he is of that last generation of assimilated German Jewry that um, then experienced this uh, crisis and then eventually uh, disaster. And at the same time, he's positing a way of looking at history that would end up having, you know, this incredible influence,
1: right? I mean, it seems like what you're maybe suggesting is that his very specific um, position vis-a-vis his Jewishness and his European Germanness and the way that he constructed his own identity is he generalizes, and what you kind of try to do as a as a corrective here is to bring in a, several voices to show how different positions, which might claim some Jewish or German slash Jewish identity had different relationships with assimilation and with Jewishness and with modernity.
0: Uh, that's not wrong. Uh, uh, but it's also true that it isn't just that he's generalizing from his own experience. It's that his own experience doesn't have that kind of consistency or single meaning that the, the phrase would seem to imply. So the same thing happens with, and it happens in all of the texts I would say that we look to when we're looking for the problem of German Jewish identity that is we look at, to the texts of german-speaking Jews who write about who write memoirs or who write about the difficulty of what was called the Jewish question and they tend to oversimplify these positions in the sense that I mean, The problem that I was dealing with in that chapter was assimilation. And the whole, even thinking about one's position as either assimilated or non assimilated, uh, doesn't really represent the way people actually lived, moved through history in that period. So we think of it in terms of what I call a spectrum. On one side, you have absolute assimilation, and the other side, you have kind of Absolute resistance to assimilation. But what are, what do those polls even mean? I mean, is the fully assimilated position, does that mean baptism? Does it mean uh, that you retain Judaism as a, a, a private confessional identity, but on the outside you seem to be a Christian? Or does it mean uh, something else? Uh, and on the other side, are you talking about? Jewish orthodoxy, religious adherence? Are you talking about an embrace of Yiddish culture? Um, are you talking about a kind of spiritual uh, identity, Jewish uh, spiritual identity?
1: Well, very often it seems um, that when we, when we are talking about specific Jewish figures of the secular modernist European literati, um, there's a kind of almost like mystical sense that there's something Jewish about their contributions um, you know, the contributions of Freud or the contributions of, um, of Hannah Arendt, maybe That uh, there, the, the fact that there were so many Jews who were artists and, and writers made it seem as if there was something specifically Jewish about the modernism that they produced. So I wonder if you could talk to us about that. What is there anything specifically Jewish about, Jewish modernism.
0: Well, I mean, of course, it, 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 I'm in the field of German Jewish cultural studies, so it would be hard for me to argue that one can't speak of German Jewish cultural uh, of German uh, of Jewish modernism. That's the, the figure that I'm dealing with in that next chapter, and um, that at the same time, what we have to consider is that when we ascribe Jewishness to secular. German thought, uh, then we are doing exactly what, of course, the anti Semites were doing when they argued that Marxist socialism or Freud's psychoanalysis or any number of other kinds of modernist trends were somehow Jewish. Uh, and that's problematic.
1: Well, what would it mean? What would be the character of this Judaism? Even like, so um, it, you do really. Interestingly, show how even the anti-anti-Semites and the anti-Semites sometimes had very similar ideas of what Jewishness exactly. was. So, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit, maybe with a, an example that you use in the book about what what Jewishness was characterized as for for some of these figures. Uh,
0: did you have an example in mind when you
1: said that? Yeah, let's actually, we can begin with um, Hugo Batower's 1922 novel, which um, you mentioned was an inspiration for the title of your book. So his novel is called The City Without Jews. And maybe you can begin by just telling us what that novel is, and then we can go from there and try to try to understand it.
0: Well, the novel, um, which was a a very popular novel, uh, one of the most popular of the time, and a film that was then made um, of it afterwards, were you know he 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 meant the novel to be a kind of amusing satire of anti-Semitism. It's very hard for us to see. It is amusing.
1: So what happened? So the novel's called *The City Without Jews*. So just basically, for the listeners who've never heard of this novel, what happened? So
0: the the, the plot of the novel is that in a fictional Central European country, so it's in Austria, uh, the parliament actually comes up with the absurd uh, rule that Jews should be expelled uh, from the city of Vienna, mm-hmm. and uh, they do. Um, expel the Jews. And then you get to see how all of modern culture sort of falls apart because the Jews aren't there kind of playing their their role. And there is a kind of romantic plot where uh, the main character, who is a a Jewish man, romantic hero, who's in love with a non-Jewish woman, ends up uh reversing this horrible history by sneaking back in the country in disguise and um, mm-hmm. uh, sabotaging the Parliament and getting everything to to be right again so what I tried to argue is that in this very plot and also in the the, the plot is also repeated in the movie you know uh, even though it can be said to, to be a kind of Philo-Semitic narrative. What um, it
1: really—it's Philo-Semitic because it looks like the Jewish, the Jewish protagonist is the hero in the end.
0: It's the hero exactly, but he fulfills every in a, in a certain way. It fulfills every stereotype, not just stereotype. It actually fulfills uh, the kind of. Uh, narrative trajectory that that the worst kind of anti-Semitic conspiracy theories held, which was, first of all, that Jews have this nefarious influence on modern culture. Second of all, that they are uh, untruthful and devious, uh, and that they, in spite of their very small numbers, have control over the the whole society. Mm -hmm. And even the romance with the so-called Aryan a uh, uh, woman uh, would be would would uh, represent a central tenet of anti-Semitism. So, what was I, I was interested in there was in the ways that this philo-Semitic narrative couldn't help but kind of invoke these anti-Semitic fantasies, mm-hmm. and therefore was complicit. And that complicity, the complicity of um, you know, also sometimes our own history writing of uh, uh, German-speaking Jews and the anti-Semitic view of the Jewish contribution to modern culture um, were, was actually troubling and something that we should think about in terms of our own uh, methodologies, writing in
1: Yeah, so I'm just curious if you, if we can learn from this a little bit about what was the character of the supposed Jewish contributions to modern society that, that, that we see in the novel. What does the, the writer of this novel think is that? Contribution.
0: Well, um, he doesn't think of it as a Jewish contribution, of course, but uh, but it was thought of as part of a, a, a modern culture industry, uh, a cheap, popular uh, culture industry, popular novels um, mm-hmm. that uh, were less noble, as high-minded than German culture as such. That's the, the kind mm-hmm. of way that it was described. Hugo Bettauer also, interestingly, was a kind of a uh, social activist, and he was the editor of uh, a, a modern in, a magazine of sexual enlightenment called Er und Sie, which is him and her, mm-hmm. or, or he and she, uh, which was then uh, uh, Persecuted by the by the government for um, pornographic or you know erotic mm. content inappropriate content,
1: and that so too, he was pushing envelopes all over the place, yeah. I guess. And of course, that also
0: belonged to the anti-Semitic stereotype of uh, Jewish involvement in the modernization of uh, of ways of looking at sex.
1: Right. I mean, it's interesting that that um, relationship between Kultur and Bildung and um, the culture industry. It seems like there was a kind of a Turnover in the in the values given to those things, where you know, there. It, you even mentioned, I think, in a different chapter, that there was a very short time period where, kind of the where, um, this idea of culture and art for art's sake and um, and so forth was was connected to deterritorialization and you call it indifferentism, which I think um, it was the philosophy that Max Brod. Uh, was inspired by at some point. And and that was pretty short-lived to the point where this Art for Art's Sakes movement merged values with cultural nationalisms. And then it it sounds like it kind of makes space for a division between you know, folk, folkish culture, high culture and cultural industry. And then the Jew kind of gets a portion to these things.
0: Yeah. I mean, um, one thing, the movement that you're talking about is often referred to uh, as aestheticism. Uh, Art for art's sake is the sort of slogan of the movement, thinking uh, about uh, art and culture just by looking at uh, aesthetic questions of the text. Um, so what aestheticism supposedly resisted was context, you know, really thinking about the uh, art object in relation to history.
1: Uh, right. And that seemed like a pretty convenient value in a sense for Jews of the turn of the century. That exactly. Yeah. They didn't have to exist with context.
0: And, uh, the tension between that uh, text And context is really something that runs throughout all of the essays of the book and uh, in in different ways. Um, So I think that is an important moment to to focus on, as you did.
1: Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. um, uh, One of the things you mentioned, uh, which I thought was really interesting, just way of understanding the currents of modernity, was how it towards the um, turn of the century, a lot of these movements had the word young or secessionist in them. Yeah. Um, and that kind of points to a certain ethic that was growing. And I, I think that that would be related to what you also call the Central European effect. Um, so you talk a little bit about Central European Jewish um, identity and Jewish m- modernism. Mm-hmm. And you talk about how there's a certain kind of identity that they that on, that looks like you can you can used to describe the central Europe. Central Europe was, Vienna in particular, was more modern, more um, open, more context-free in that sense than than Paris or Berlin. Um, but it was also a performance of that freedom and mobility. Um, and so you invent this term, the Central Europe effect, and, and you kind of half apologize for inventing a new term in a jargon-filled discourse, but I wanted to ask you more about that and why, what kind of um, what work that term can do for us.
0: Yeah, uh, that was chapter six. It's called Elsewhere in Austria, Jewish writing between Habsburg myth and Central Europe effect. And um, I was trying, again, to uh, think about the ways in which we write about Austrian Jewish history in this case, uh, and uh, to go—I guess the, the best way to put it would be to say—to to go a bit meta. That is to say, to look at what our practices are, instead of just taking for granted that we're seeing, you know, through some kind of transparent glass that this Jewish. Uh, culture written, uh, German writing in uh, the Austro-Hungarian Empire by Jews, uh, especially by Jews who didn't come from Vienna. Uh, in that chapter, i looking mainly at the literature of Jewish writers from the eastern part of the Habsburg Empire. And uh, what people have tended to see when they looked at that is kind of displacement of sorts, a, a way in which people didn't uh, – th- th- these different authors seem to articulate a kind of displacement, not quite fitting right, not quite belonging uh, uh, to the place where they are. And that actually is the magic of their contributions. I mean, that would be.
1: And that's kind of like that would that would that looks like it's the view from the outside that yes, historians exactly. from the future look backwards and say, oh, look at this amazing situation where they really had this. um this deterch, this positive deterritorialization,
0: uh, so what I tried to do in the chapter is to argue that this very way of thinking about the, the, these historical moments and these cultures of the past um, are themselves manifestations of some kind of effect, and that 's why I use the word um, effect so th- to think of it in, in terms of uh, you know an operation rather than an actual description of actual displacement. I think that's another thing that runs through a lot of the different chapters here, that is to think in terms of operations, in terms of the the things that motivate the way we organize our thinking about German Jewish secular culture, rather than to take for granted that it is something other than German culture, something apart from something minor, and so forth and so on.
1: Right. I mean, yeah, I think part of what um, I understand from this is that, that these, this identity um, that we are noticing and recognizing was actually also being crafted at that time, that it's an operation because those the people that we're looking at were actually themselves self-consciously performing a, this identity, claiming these values that we are now attributing to them.
0: Yeah, I think that there are, uh, you know, again, the... Chapters deal with very different things that are linked Mm -hmm. thematically, but I I think that's very astute that there are different kinds of innovation, modernist innovation, let's call it, that actually come from this, the ability to take the subject position of being somehow um, uh, in in some kind of displaced um, Mm -hmm. uh, position.
1: Right. Um, Yeah, I guess that there could be an argument to be made that, you know, that Jewish modernism isn't Jewish at all. It's it's modernity. And it's just this, the intensified position of the Jew vis-a-vis modernity that makes it Jewish. Um, uh, So uh, I was wondering, in that case, would you say some, like, if we were to kind of try to, counter that, would we be able to counter it, that idea that there really is no Judaism in Jewish modernity with a figure like Martin Buber um, and his influence? So Martin Bluber, um, Martin Buber was one of the, I would say, few Jewish authors who really very directly took inspiration from Jewish sources and published Hasidic tales, for example. And I wonder if you would say that his Hasidic tales and other things like that provided Jewish content to Jewish modernism.
0: Well, Hoover is an interesting case because he uh, is connected both to the, you know, what you would call, you know, in your own work sort of uh, imagined uh, Jewish authenticity Mm -hmm. from Eastern Europe that he was familiar with Yiddish, with Hasidic culture. Um, he was raised, though not born, uh, in Galicia and Lemberg, which is now uh, today's Lviv in, in, in the Ukraine, mm-hmm. and um, he uh, and, and born in Vienna. And so he had a foot in both worlds. And I think that's the secret to him being able to both embody this kind of you know, Jewish authenticity from Orthodoxy, from Hasidic mm-hmm. culture, from Yiddish speaking culture, and at the same time, a kind of uh, German philosophical tradition that, of course, he also uh, engaged in. So I think that the secret of the kind of synthesis in Buber's modernism, if we can call it that, is in the alternation between those two worlds.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. um, You also have a really great, though, like all your chapters, short and dense chapter on Freud and his relationship Mm -hmm. with Judaism. And and you make a pretty strong case there that it's his position, not necessarily content, but the position of being a Jew that really um, influences him. I wonder what you can tell us about that.
0: Well, again, I want to both put into question. I want to do two things. I want to put into question the Jewishness of psychoanalysis, the idea that psychoanalysis uh, has always been plagued by the, the the possibility that it is not as it as it pr- pr- purports to be, you know, a, a universal way of understanding the human condition, but instead is something specific to this to this minority, to this Jewish minority. And that, of course, was the accusation of its anti-Semitic opponents. Um, But in that particular chapter, I wanted to also look at the competition between the humanities and the hard sciences, natural sciences, in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, and to think of it in light of this Kind of problem of the Jewishness of psychoanalysis, and um, so that's really what's at at, at play there, and um, what I'm trying to to work through in the piece. I don't myself ever take a point, t- take a position on whether Jewishness somehow informed the actual form of psychoanalytic theory. It's just not one of my questions.
1: But it does seem like what one of the thi- what the things that come out of it is that this, that this, um, really thinking self consciously about what it means to be a subject and what it means to be an individual who is built out of structures is a question that comes to mind, in a sense, beca- because of the Jew- Jewish mobile identity. Um, in an er- in an earlier uh, phrase that in, I think it's in your preface, you write that the Jewish question, which is a the famous phrase, the Jewish question, is born alongside the subject question, which is less famous as a phrase. But the Jewish question is born alongside the subject question. You say as if it were a Siamese twin, and that's kind of some of what I read into your Freud chapter here as well. That that he that he is dealing with the Jewish question, and so it kind of, in a sense, you um, you couldn't necessarily prove this you know scientifically, but it, it provokes the subject question.
0: The person who's really good to look at uh, for this connection is again, uh, Buber, whom as you've you know mentioned, I don't talk about a lot in the book, but um, who said in one of his famous lectures uh, in Prague uh, which were very influential to a whole generation of German-speaking Central European Jews, uh, he said, he argued that the real Jewish question is the one within every single Jew. That is, what is it? How am I going to engage as a Jewish person? What is Jewish about me? And what he does in that moment is flip because the Jewish question is the question of assimilation. It's the question of how are, how is this minority population supposed to be part of the general European culture? Uh, how can we integrate them, or can they not ever be integrated? Um, and that is why, and of course, Hitler's Endlerism, the final solution, is the final solution to the Jewish question. Uh, what Boomer does is turn this question on his head and, and say instead, it has to do with something going on inside you. You know, it's a kind of, he's a kind of Oprah Winfrey of. Uh, Jewish culture in the period, and you know, it's kind of the power of self transformation. You know, uh, uh, the secret is within you. Does that does that help answer the question of the link?
1: Yeah, I think that that. Yeah, I think that does that characterize to some extent what what it, cultural Zionism. Cultural, is? It, it,
0: it, it's linked because Buber is a central figure in cultural Zionism. Cultural Zionism was uh, the particular strand. Of uh, Zionism uh, in the, especially in the early 20th uh, century, and at the very end of the 19th century, and a central figure is someone who doesn't who isn't a German Jew at all, Ahad uh, Ha'am, who's one of the the central theorists of Odessa, and he um, his writing uh, ends up getting. Taken up, but especially by a lot of young people in uh, Central Europe. And what this entails a shift from thinking about Zionism in terms of a political solution to the problem of anti-Semitism via the establishment of a state, a diplomatic or political solution by establishing a state for Jews, a Jewish state, uh, probably in Palestine. Uh, and instead, the cultural Zionists wanted to think about Zionism as a vehicle for the renewal of the Jewish people, the internal renewal of a, of a diaspora people that had lost their way had lost their roots. Again, it's connected to an idea of authenticity, um, sometimes linked to something called spiritual Zionism. Sometimes those two are conflated, so that it has to do with the transformation of ourselves, not with the establishment of a, of a state. Um, so yes, it is
1: linked. Yeah, reading your book, I got the sense that yeah, sorry. Reading your book, I had the sense that it's almost as if there was this kind of ethic that was kind of the people got enthusiastic about, about um, aestheticism and decontextualization. And it, it would it might be possible to just not have an identity. And then kind of after the turn of the century in World War One and just the maturity of some of these figures, they kind of just feel the pain of alienation and they're looking for a, a new paradigm, rather than merely, you know, uh, cosmopolitanism. And, and so this becomes another option, you know, where we will actually find a rootedness um, somewhere. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think it's not for nothing that the essays, with the exception of probably one, really all focus on this period from the late 19th century, really the 1880s, um, through World War One, that 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 is really the core period when Of of course, also the core period of modernism and uh, the the period when the idea of rethinking our relationship to modernity, how we can live in the modern world, takes such innovative forms. The one exception uh, is the third of the methodological chapters at the beginning is uh, the term that I'm looking at there is secular itself or rather secularization, thinking about the historical process of secularization or something that we call the secularization thesis, the idea that uh, somehow uh, as we move forward uh, from enlightenment uh, into the future, we will move uh, away from religion and become more secular. Uh, And then the idea that followed from that, which was that maybe um, all the – The modernization of our institutions is really just a kind of translation of religious institutions into modern secular ones and not a transformation at all. And that uh, an entire debate about that ensued after World War II. What I noticed and what I hadn't seen written about a lot before was that some of the core actors in this debate, almost all of them, the ones I was identifying anyway, were uh, themselves arguably German Jews. I say arguably because two of the key ones weren't Jewish at all. They were they were raised Protestant, but um they were both
1: yeah who are we speaking about if you want to just name names? Yeah oh sure. Um so the 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 second
0: I should say that there is one key figure who's not Jewish at all because he is absolutely a German Christian and in fact uh famously uh, Very uh, strongly associated with National Socialism, and that's the jurist Carl Schmidt. Um, but he is in dialogue after the war with a whole set of um, German Jewish thinkers, or like the two I mentioned, Carl Lurwitt is one, uh, the historian who then uh, works at, uh, is a professor at Wesleyan University. And another is Hans Blumenberg, who's a philosopher. And, Comparative literature specialist who does uh, uh, have a take a position in the professoriate in Germany after the war, but both were identified as Jews by the Nazis because they were so-called racial Jews because of their because they had Jewish heritage and um, they were both persecuted because of that heritage. So. Um, th- those are two of the main actors, but it also goes as far as people like Hannah Arendt, who's who writes things that are related to this. Um, Leo Strauss, who um, also is from, from the U.S., r- writes a lot of things, met many members of the Frankfurt School.
1: And they're writing about, the, they're writing that secularization is really a just a, a new way of sacralizing the world, a new kind of uh, just... A different Christianity. And it's, you know, Carl Schmitt.
0: Well, yes, there is, a, there is a debate about that. So they take different positions, but that's precisely what they end up um, debating. What's curious about it is that nowhere in the literature is there reference, uh, I would say Strauss is maybe uh, an exception here, but in most of the discussions, there's no explicit reference to Judaism or secular Judaism. At all, it's uh, and, you know, in fact, it's a kind of a Christian concept because it's connected to um, Christian eschatology. Um, but uh, the so what I tried to argue or suggest better than argue in the chapter was that after World War II, the Jewish question, which had so plagued the history of Jews in Germany and German speaking Lands uh, uh, ever since Enlightenment was no longer speakable. It, the, the Nazis had made it unspeakable. The, 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 the Nazi solution, the final solution, was not a solution to the problem of Jews in Europe, but it was, in a way, the dissolution of the Jewish question. And that it gets could it could we say that this uh, secularization question, which is the name of my chapter, that this secularization thesis is in a way a dis, you know sort of Freudian displacement of the Jewish question.
1: Yeah, I, I find that pretty convincing, especially, I don't know if you'll agree with this, but if you can kind of read it backwards also, that maybe the Jewish question really always was a secularization question, or as I said earlier, the subject question, which is linked. And
0: it, 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 and it was always, I mean, the, the thing that bothers me the most about historiography uh, Of uh, especially of Central European Judaism is the way that the Jewish question gets invoked without quotation marks. The way that people really talk about it as though there was a thing rather than a discourse. What there was was an anti Semitic discourse, there was uh, a, a way of thinking. About members of the society, and they were members of the society and culture, right? That's that would set them apart, right? That's you know, that's that's the the. the that's the question. It wasn't, you know, a Negro question. There was a racism question, you know. Uh, uh, it's the same thing with all of these questions. Right, yeah. right.
1: There's a right. There's a question about the question. There's a question question. <laughs> so, yeah, actually, this it's linked, I think, to um, Hannah Arendt very closely. This, You know, um, and I was really intrigued by your treatment of Arendt and especially of her biography of Rahel Von Hagen, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, um, where she describes the content of the Jewish, parvenu story, as to quote you, "quote a dialectic of unself consciousness and necessitated self consciousness." So this dialectic of um, of, no, of kind of wanting to belong, assimilation, um, uh, being naively assimilated versus being a willing assimilationist, and being self conscious about one's own desire to fit and to not have to be self conscious. Um, so with that long intro to the question, I wonder if you could just tell us um, how how Arendt is dealing with the Jewish question with this book.
0: Yeah, I, I think I'm not the only one to think of this book, which was her, it was meant to be her habilitation, we say habilitation. It's the second book one writes after the dissertation to become a professor. Um, and she never finished, she writes the book with, with Jaspers, the famous Um, the famous philosopher, um, and she doesn't end up, she's not allowed to complete this uh, course of study because of her Jewishness. Uh, Yes, exactly. Uh, And she writes, she completes the book uh, much later, the last uh, couple of chapters, but she corresponds with Jaspers uh, about the problem of the book. And, you know, kind of debate between them is, something that I thought shed light on some of the dynamics that I was looking at. But the main one is one that other people have noticed, which is, you know, what would drive Hannah Arendt to write about somebody uh, like Rachen uh, van Yeah, then,
1: yeah, it's actually quite a surprising book for Arendt to mm-hmm. have written.
0: And it, uh, it, it, She wrote it on the basis of a cache of uh of letters and other kinds of uh, ephemera by Feinheim. uh And she, she was able to immerse herself in that archive and to try to recover the kind of inner voice of this. Feinhagen was a, a German romantic who was really of that really first generation of just at the beginning of the promise of assimilation. She herself is uh, baptized. She Marries an important person. Von Hagen is actually his name, uh, not hers. Uh, not, not and
1: her before name. she's married, she was famous as a salonnière. Yeah, and, right? and, and
0: and while she's married, she is she hosts these um, salons, which um, are so important uh, for enlightenment. And so uh, the the kind of difficulty of being herself, being it's it's not only about being Jewish, it's also about being a woman uh, and participating in an important way in the general culture. That problem is uh, one that Arendt is obviously identifying with. So I think a lot of people have looked at this book as a kind of almost autographical exercise of Arendt, that she was really thinking and talking in some way about herself. I instead looked at Van Hagen and, 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 and Arend as bookends of the promise of German-Jewish assimilation. One at the very beginning when it didn't seem yet like she could resolve all of the contradictions of her identity. And the other one from the end, from the retrospect after the Holocaust. Uh, which is, of course, when she wrote um, the, the the final chapters and when she presented the book, uh, or, you know, the 30s when, you know, the crisis of the promise of assimilation mm-hmm. was already apparent. Um,
1: right. But it does seem that there's a quite a lot of... Um, she identifies with her and emphasizes with Rahel quite a lot and also, you know, brings out that awkward position, which, and I wonder how close that is to... Uh, what Gershom Sholem um, describes as the Jewish position. Um, uh, he you, you quote him as saying that Jews were required to surrender their group identity, but then despised for their willingness to do so. And to me, that sounds like a definition of the parvenu.
0: Yeah. Uh, I think the problem of the, uh, Aaron says between pariah and parvenu, the sort of, the, the the problem between these two um, positions that could be identified as Jewish is the problem of the emancipation assimilation pact that we spoke of earlier. Right.
1: Right. And, and that there's something that does seem like if you were to, it it does seem like an appealing interpretation that, that this pact was always poisoned and that the the Sholem's interpretation.
0: Yeah. 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 It's a double, famous double bind. Yeah. Dan, so if you do, I wonder if, if we don't.
1: could speak for a little bit about um, Kafka and Broad. You write a chapter um, called, uh, well, you can tell me as I look for it, Max Broad's homelands and Kafka's patrimony. And that's kind of intriguingly, intriguing case story Two people who were very close friends who had very different reactions to their position in, you know, growing up in Prague as Jews.
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, there, putatively, you know, there was this very close friendship between the two. Certainly, Kafka owes to Broad, and we all, uh, Broad is owed from, you know, civilization uh, a debt of having, um, for having saved so many unpublished Kafka manuscripts. And even the published manuscripts may have fallen into obscurity without his tireless uh, attempts to promote Kafka. So um, I do have great respect for for that. Um, But, you know, they were very different people and they were very different writers and they had very different relationships to Judaism and to uh, writing. Uh, And I tried in that chapter, what it's really dealing with is the contemporary you know the very recent uh uh case court case about um the rightful place or the the place where um some the last pieces of rhodes papers would be housed and right
1: so he had given them to his secretary And then his secretary just kept them until her daughters inherited them. And then her daughters were holding them somewhere in Israel in a suitcase. Right. Yeah.
0: uh, uh, That is exactly right. Except the one uh, disclaimer is she didn't keep them and do nothing with, with them. She sold them piece by piece, but she hadn't sold all of them. So the trial for instance, was sold to the most famous literary archive in Germany, for you know uh, at the time, a million dollars and um, which would be worth much more now. and um, it was so two million marks, I believe. and um, the, and she sold off other uh, little pieces. So the case came to Tel Aviv court because it was really just a an inheritance case, right? They were reading Broad's Testaments. Uh, what did he, you know, what had he intended in these wills? He wrote two different ones. He did will them to the secretary who was his lover. Um, and, uh, he also said with the intention of them going to an archive. And then he listed a set of archives where they could go. And he named several Israeli ones first. And then he mentioned, um, Or another archive. So the court had to interpret what is, as it does, what his interpretation is, what rights these granddaughters or or these daughters of Esther Hoffa, of the secretary, had to um, this material, and so on and so forth. They did not have to deal with the question, nor did they ever deal with the question of whether Broad or Kafka were more Jewish or Israeli than they were German. What I was interested in in the chapter was the way that all of the discussions about the case and the arguments of both libraries, the National uh, L- Library in Israel uh, and the one in uh, and the Marbach, uh, uh German Literary Archive, what, how all of these people, in, when they engaged in a discussion of the case, Immediately fell to these questions of homeland and patrimony, of really cultural right. heritage. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that right. wasn't with that, was
1: Kafka Zionist. Mm-hmm. So that, <laughs> that is, becomes a question. Yeah, and it is linked
0: to, or, you know, Broad, I mean, Broad certainly was in uh, a fashion, but um, there were, uh, but, but, but these weren't the things that were at issue in the case, and yet right. our way of thinking about them immediately sort of there's this irresistible gravitational pull to these what we would call you know essentialist questions of where in this case Kafka really belongs right. that was the
1: maybe- and there's an attribution there that you mentioned there's an attribution toward the Israeli court of this kind of mythologization of Kafka or of Broad even though the court was was dealing with legal issues i I there was one phrase that um that you that you used in relation to one of these um, analysts of the court case. You wrote that Will Self, a British author, called the Israeli state claim on the papers a falsification of Kafka as a Zionist saint. And then you comment that, this, that Will Self's depiction of the ruling depicts the ruling as, quote, an act of aggressive inauthenticity that is also an appropriation. So that's so Will Self's perspective is that the ruling is an act of aggressive inauthenticity that is also an appropriation.
0: Yes. And also, the, even the word falsification is one that suggests kind of uh, forged papers, right? The idea of some kind of authentic identity that is here forged. Broad is trying to turn Kafka into an Israeli or something.
1: Right. Yeah. I had to say that that phrase really intrigued me because I wanted to turn it right back on Kafka himself. Um aside from all the implications of like what this British analyst is thinking about Israel mm-hmm. and and uh, you know projecting onto the courts there, um I feel like that that, that would be a very apt phrase that I think that would would characterize Kafka's own understanding of himself—that somebody who acts with aggressive inauthenticity—that is also appropriation. Um, I think that Kafka had a, had pain, suffered pain, and uh, because that was the way that he saw himself.
0: That's a great point, and I wonder if you're quoting from your own dissertation chapter as you've described it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I, I this is something I have sp- thought about quite a bit, and. Um, Yeah, because it does seem like this, uh, and I guess whenever the word authentic, I I should tell the listeners that my dissertation is titled with, you know, key term authenticity. Um, But yeah, this idea that that the demand for authenticity was something that people could experience as something painful and awkward becomes very alive to me in Kafka.
0: Yeah, well... um... The qu- quote that everybody uh, looks to for this is, of course, the one where he writes in his diary, um, what have I in common with Jews? I have hardly anything in common with myself and should sit quietly in a corner, um, unable to breathe. as that how it goes?
1: Yeah. And that, uh, yeah, I think there is, there's something about the, there's other moments where he talks about suffocating and imagines himself and that. Every air that every breath he takes in a sense is an appropriation. Um, because, you know, because there's such a, a neurosis when it comes to performing the self um, and a, and a, this acute self consciousness that he has, that I think is part of the Jewish situation, if not the Jewish question.
0: Yeah. Um, with someone like Kafka, you really are dealing with um, such an extreme uh, form of self-consciousness and manipulation of the discourse of authenticity, that to, to think of taking a quote as a kind of description of how he feels about his Jewishness in this sort of sim- simplistic way really does violence to, as I said, the operation of his texts more than you know, the way he thought of himself. That's kind of not even the relevant fact.
1: Yeah, there was something really wonderful that I learned about about the operation mm-hmm. of his texts from you, and you were talking about how he uses allegory in a way that mm-hmm. is a trap. Yeah,
0: um, I, I, I've, I sometimes wonder if I should rethink it. Um, there is a way in which the metaphor of a trap that I've used is also limiting in a certain way because – it suggests intention, it, me- it suggests
1: that- Okay, well, let's start by saying what you first said and then we maybe correct it. So just so that the listeners can follow through. So I th- so if I can gloss it, I think what you're saying is that the allegories are kind of, so, kind of in a sense on the surface, this idea that, um, that let's say in the metamorphosis, the, the beetle is the Jew who can never really contribute to society and is always parasitic. It's almost like so easily accessible that the allegory itself is a trap.
0: Yes. Um, What is clear is he is very conscious of the kinds of uh, uh, the the kinds of uh, allegorical interpretations that people will make. Um, So that, for instance, I mean, that one, the metamorphosis is complicated uh, in different right. ways.
1: That's not, I should say, that's not the example you used. Yeah. yeah.
0: Well, I mean, it, people do use it, though, because, for instance, the word ungeziffer that he uses, he doesn't say bug as everyone knows, he says vermin. It um, is a word that was used. Uh, it comes up in his diary, for instance, uh, in relation to the Yiddish uh, dramatist that he becomes friends with. And in the letter to his father, he, he says that his Father has has called his um his his Jewish friend Ungetzi uh, for you know, vermin. and so we have these ways of thinking. Ah, there it is. You know, it represents the Jew.
1: Or, for instance,
0: um, in the, but then
1: what does it mean that it's a trap? It kind of it doesn't mean that it it means that your interpretation itself becomes the literature. The interpretation that the literature compels becomes the literature. That's that's the insight that I understood. That the interpretation
0: exactly that's right that that the interpretation is the allegory the allegorical interpretation is built in to um the literary text in a way that doesn't mean this stands for that but rather you're meant to so what i don't like about the metaphor of Krav, as i said is that it does make it sound a little bit like well what kafka is really doing in these texts is tricking us and that's true uh in some way possibly but that's really that, that, that's overly limiting um i think but yeah um i think that we do have to think about but i
1: would think that it's also just an invitation to irony like i i don't feel tricked i feel invited to appreciate the irony and doubleness of of my reading mm-hmm um, before I let you go, I wanted to make sure that we talk a little bit about Edith Stein. So, for me, Kafka is familiar territory, and I love talking about Kafka. But Edith Stein was somebody very new to me. and um and I'm really intrigued by her story. and by the way, she fits into your problematic. So, I wonder if you could talk to us about how she how you found her and placed her in this book.
0: Yeah, well, this is literally uh, placed her in this book because this is a reprint of uh, an essay that I wrote some time ago, but I wanted to include it here because I felt like it embodied the kind of analysis that I was arguing in those first three methodological quest, uh, chapters that I was talking about, that is looking at operations of subjectivity instead of just taking subjects at their word and assuming that we can place them here or there on a spectrum of Jewishness mm-hmm. um, and modernity. And in the case, Edith Stein is uh, at the time when I wrote it, she had uh, it came out just after she was canonized uh, as uh, a saint. Mm-hmm. And it was a problematic canonization because although she was Catholic and a nun and she had converted she was brought up uh, Jewish in Silesia, and she um, converted to Catholicism. Uh, she entered Carmel as a Carmelite nun, and mm-hmm. then she uh, perished in the Holocaust.
1: Right. And I um, you, you. I think you just skipped the part where she was a student of Husserl. I did,
0: yeah. She yeah, was okay. also um, a philosophy st- student, um, and she was also a, f- a feminist of sorts. At least she wrote a lot of essays on uh, the woman question, although um, I could argue that they were somewhat problematic from our contemporary feminist standpoint. But, uh, so I tried to look at these different identities that don't seem to fit well with one another. She was very engaged in her Jewish identity. She wrote a memoir that I deal with a lot in the chapter on, um,
1: right. And the memoir is called my Jewish family. Is that uh, memoirs <laughs> of
0: a, uh, Memories of a Jewish of life in a Jewish family. Um, I try right. to do so, yeah. textual readings. Really, try to look at how she places herself as a figure in this, in these memoirs, and how the figures work. And you come up with some very uncomfortable ways in which um, Jewishness, Judaism, Christianity, even Aryan racial identities, all get mixed up and. Transposed in, in in the text in really interesting ways, and what I try to argue mm-hmm. is that our difficulty in accepting her into our own, you know, literary canon and our canon of feminists or our canon of um, uh, German Jewish figures, the one canon that she was that it, what she works in is the actual, you know, canonization as a, as a saint by the Pope, um, but. Mm-hmm. Uh, that 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 very difficulty of placing her is something really built in to her own kind of creative, innovative, subjective self representations and representations. So um, to think of this, you know, kind of carefully and self contradictorily, I would say, um, mm-hmm. um, construed subjectivity as itself a kind of aesthetic. Product as a response to an anti-Semitic and sexist um, context.
1: Yeah, uh, we mentioned that authenticity is um, a little trigger word for me here, and I I circled a a moment where you write that um, that that she kind of invents these doubled and unidentical unidentical selves as the way to understand the self and it mm-hmm. thus compels an inescapable intimacy with the other and a link mm-hmm. between dissimulation and authenticity. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So, yeah. So I thought and the title of the chapter is called Edith Stein's passing gestures. That's so right. you've developed um, a really interesting way of understanding what it means to pass mm-hmm. in that chapter.
0: Yes. I'm uh, working with the, again, the kind of, horrible anti-Semitic stereotype, uh, of the period, that there's something nefarious about a Jew passing, you know, um, assimilating. Um, and, um, that, uh, metaphor of passing is one that I do. I think, you know, somewhat creative things with try to extend the definition of, of passing, um,
1: Right. Actually, you do that in a last chapter on Kafka as well with the word correspondence. And it just occurs to me that those things kind of go together. The passing and the correspondence, right? The correspondence isn't just letters and passing doesn't just mean passing off something as something you're not. There's also passing between and there's a correspondence of objects, which is a relationship, right? Or a correspondence of other people.
0: Yeah, no, that's great. I think that they are really linked in spite of being four different period, uh, periods. Uh, and different people, um, because the the chapter that you're talking about is is the final one, the law of the letter, which is about Kafka's correspondence or uh, his his le- collection of letters to his Czech lover Milena Yazenska, and uh, there is right passing among different identities there uh, as well between male and female, Czech and German. Um, uh, uh, Christian yeah. and Jewish,
1: and there's a there's a will to cor- to create correspondence and a will to to make those passings happen.
0: Yeah. And also centrally, um, the uh, different worlds of writing—that is, of the the written world, world of the letters—and the uh, the the real world where at people actually engage, meet date, have sex, or don't have sex, you know, all of those things happen in the world around the letters. But the thing that really matters in the relation, the relationship is really made out of these letters, the relationship is textual, right, right,
1: the plot of their relationship kind of covers a summer, where they're sending letters to one another, they have one meeting toward the beginning, which is great, and then one meeting toward the end, which fails somehow, Mm -hmm. and it's not Mm -hmm. quite clear in the letters exactly how, right?
0: well it seems I mean, it seems to be implied that there was uh, impotence in the hotel room. Uh, it's at least a sort of missed connection of some kind that is uh, that that Kafka experiences shame about
1: right, and then shortly after that, they stop corresponding for some time.
0: Yeah they do um, and uh, the, the relationship is begun in letters. And it is cut off in letters mm-hmm. and everything sort of takes, takes place um, in writing. So it was a very good way to end in, in the sense that it had to do with this tension between text and context that I talked mm-hmm. about before. And how even to think of as a problem, you know, how do we think about the connection between written work and, you know, uh, like the German Jewish life?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I understood it also, you know, you talked a little bit toward the very end about Kafka's way of talking about his own illness. And so there also that's the the text and reality and the meaning that we attribute to things and the meaning that we try to create out of reality is all kind of mixed up. And what comes first is not clear. So for so his illness, he, he speaks about in ways that are very metaphorical. Um But it's also a very real illness, and he does the same thing with the correspondence that fails with uh, Milena. Is that, mm -hmm. Uh, yeah? So that was a really interesting and intriguing way to end this book. I thought. Was that did that did that uh, was that the plan? (laughs) Well, I mean, um, that
0: in an odd way, it comes back to my very uh, earliest work. I mean the, the first book I wrote anyway, Prague Territories, from which, you know, that material is drawn. Mm-hmm. And um I I think there was I gained some satisfaction also from ending on that note, which mm-hmm. you know, kind of circling around to right. the Kafka work.
1: Yeah, and you're and you're very good at not giving us that closure which I think is the point of your book in the first place that we're that it's not about defining terms like Jewish news or modernity or secularism it's about figuring out first of all what people experienced with those terms and how they tried to construct those terms for themselves in their own lives and then you know and understanding that these are these become intimate concepts um so there's no closure I suppose
0: yeah, no, thank you. I mean, I think that's a, a very astute observation, and it's something, and I, it's flattering what you said, because, you know, in a way, uh, it, a challenge of the book for, for scholars who work on German-Jewish culture may be that I seem, especially in those first three chapters, to kind of pull the ground out from under their feet and to argue that all of these things that we do centrally in our profession actually impossible to do in, you know, an unreflected fashion. And that really we have to question all of those foundations and go back to the actual texts and try to not take for granted that we know the simple ways that they fit in terms of a German Jewish identity crisis. And another way in which I try to avoid closure is by saying that the solution by prescribing a specific solution, that instead I offer examples of different ways that we could look at these different historical moments and different uh, uh, figures, different texts, um, and model different things we could do, but not say this is how you, you have to do it in this way. Like, for instance, the, the analysis of Edith Stein is only applicable to Edith Stein. You can't really, It's not. it's not a method that you can take with you and then, you know, apply to Martin Buber. Um, Right,
1: except in the sense that she, I believe, helps you to understand the importance of interiority. Um, I think you have a phrase here that I'm looking for now about um, turning towards interiority as a historian.
0: Yeah, in a lot of her texts, I found that she worked with this, you know, dichotomy or binary of interiority and exteriority, which of course is linked to, Text and context that we've been talking about throughout. And um, she, and even in her more um, spiritual writings, um, she has reflections that really suggest that inner life is what matters. And even, you know, in the darkest night, she's looking out her window at, you know, uh, Nazi Germany. Uh, she's saying that's when saints of the present come to the fore. And of course, she is kind of, you know, proletically describing her own canonization in advance.
1: Yeah. Wow. So before I let you go, can you tell us what you're working on next? Is-
0: yeah. Uh, right now I'm, I'm working on a, a big book on um, the, the former Habsburg Empire and the cities of uh, what used to be Austria Hungary, and I'm looking at the palimpsest of different layers of traces of histories that, that are in these places. So um, I'm trying to work against the idea that this was an inauthentic kind of a, 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 a nation or empire, and that it, uh, uh, the, the essence of the place is only to be found in its national. Uh, histories after the end of the Habsburg Empire, but I'm also trying to look at the ways in which those different layers of history nationalist, imperial communist uh, uh, and so on uh, fascists are um, in dialogue with one another at any given moment in any place. It's kind of travel writing, it's kind of, I mean I'm, I'm really enjoying writing it and um there are there's a, a strong Jewish component, but it's not specifically just Habsburg Jews. But one of the things I do in the book is, is go a lot to old Jewish sites, Jewish cemeteries, Jewish neighborhoods, and try to see what traces of that lost history are still there.
1: So I assume you do it in the book and you're doing it in person, the, the travel.
0: Yes, <laughs> and uh, I'm in the book.
1: Too. <laughs> oh yeah, that's great. I actually there's some some books that I really particularly like are where the the author kind of reveals how they're doing the research and uh, shows us where they're going, where the archives are. That's that's very intriguing. I'm looking forward to to reading that. Yes, yeah.
0: yeah. thanks. Yeah, yeah. My experience is, is a big part of it.
1: Okay, well, thank you so much for your time, uh, Professor Scott Spector. Um, thank you so much for talking with us.
0: Thanks, Davida for the interview. This was fantastic. Thank you very much.
1: We've been talking with Professor Scott Spector of the University of Michigan about his new book, Modernism Without Jews. Thanks for listening to New Books and Jewish Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network.